0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, and chapter 23, verses 17 and 18. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we want to explore the subject of the fear of God as we're going through this study on Proverbs where we are really endeavoring to be people of wisdom and walking out the love and the care and the uh, wisdom of God in our daily lives as we reflect Him. And so we want to consider what the Scriptures have to say about fear because all throughout the Proverbs it keeps on coming up. Fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. When you read through all Scripture... It keeps coming up, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, through the Old Testament. So we want to ask some questions of this text in our desire to um, really marvel at God this morning, worship at him, and then walk out of here and desire to live to his glory. So the first question we want to ask this text is, why do the scriptures present the fear of God as both essential and good? It's interesting that uh, fear isn't mentioned as like phase two or phase three of wisdom. It's not like phase one, obey. Phase two, develop this fear of the Lord. It's like right at the beginning. No fear, no wisdom. Why is it presented uh, in this way? And um, as we consider this, uh, this term fear, it's actually critical to faith, but it's also somewhat offensive to us. As moderns, we're like, well, that doesn't sound like that could be good it kind of makes god sound like a cosmic ogre maybe he's like the other gods in the other mythologies if you read hesiod's theogony which is sort of like the origins of the gods there's a lot of lightning bolts getting thrown around they describe how the gods operate and there's sort of this you know the monstrous deity and the subjects is that what we're dealing with in the bible is that the god of the bible it isn't at all, and so we're going to explore this this morning. In the Hebrew, understanding of this word fear, which in English it just gets translated as fear, there's, there's two meanings, and uh, so we're going to look at those this morning. And then in the New Testament, the word fear in the Greek is just continually phobia, which well, phobia, which is where we get phobia, and so obviously it's like this terror and this like wanting to run. But when you look at the context of the way that the fear is used in the New Testament, it can't... Possibly mean that God's goal is that we are terrorized by Him and we want to run away from him. So what does this mean? The first meaning of the word uh, "fear" in Hebrew, it is precisely that. It is precisely terror. And there were lots of contexts where people related to God in terror. You have God showing up in these massive, just life-shaking, uh, natural uh, uh, supernatural ways fire on the mountain and earthquakes and just the monstrous miracles that you see throughout the old testament and there was like a fear there that was a terror what was god's goal in the terror though he's like hey i'm just going to freak out humanity because i have a dark pleasure in this this can't be the heart of god so what was the meaning of all of that now susan and i when we were on our holidays we were driving back driving her sister's car back from calgary And we were driving through the prairies, and uh, at one point, a tornado started forming. We had tornado warnings while we were gone, and when we stopped for gas, one of the guys said to Susan, which direction are you guys going, because there's tornado warnings. And thankfully, we were going in a good direction, but a tornado started to form. And when that funnel cloud started coming down out of the sky, and I watched it coming down towards the, 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 the earth, there was fear. I was also amazed... And it was striking, and I couldn't stop looking at it. I was mesmerized by it, but I was also afraid of it. Both of those things were happening. I was trying to remember, what are the protocols here? Am I supposed to drive away from it? Do I, like, where, how do, do I just go into the field and we do an off-roading? It was, it was terrifying. So there was aspects in the Old Testament where there was this fear that was this sort of a terror. But the question is, why why are those texts there? What are they provoking us to consider? In Joshua chapter 2, I could go to many, but in jo- Joshua chapter 2 is a familiar passage where the people of God have been led through the wilderness by the very presence of God, a uh, 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 cloud during the day to shield them from the sun and a pillar of fire at night. It's just, it's, it's mind-blowing, the, the way that God had moved heaven and earth in ancient history to save his people from slavery and death in Egypt. And when they get to Jericho, there's a woman there. Her name is Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute, and here's what Rahab said in Joshua chapter 2 when Joshua's, uh, some of the soldiers came to inquire about the city. She said, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, and when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and in earth below. There was like a terror that came over these people, but what was the terror? The terror was we're worshiping the wrong God. The terror was, our understanding of reality is not reality. And it's terrifying. This is how I understand the world. And in their context, this is, these are the gods that I worship. And then there was a terror to discover, actually, that is not a true God. In Romans chapter 1, it says that all humans have a knowledge of God in the essence of who we are, deep in our soul. We have a knowledge of God, but we suppress that knowledge. And the suppression of the knowledge of God can lead to terror. The terror that, what do you mean I'm not God? Um, That idea is terrifying. What do you mean that the things that I love and believe, my worldviews, can't be true? Because there could be a divine God, the creator of all things, who has a definition of truth... But he's not going to bend to my definitions of truth. I actually have to bend my knee to his. That's that's terrifying. That's, there's terror there. So there's an aspect of the Hebrew word of terror that of fear that is terror um, that we have to really grapple with and sit in the, the gravity of this. But the the, the big question is really um, why? What is God actually after? Is that the fear that He wants? Is that the way that He wants humanity to relate to Him? Like the ancient Greeks related to Zeus. Careful, lightning bolts, lightning bolts might come. Like, is that the heart of God? And I can say with confidence that it isn't the heart of God. Because there are many, many instances all throughout the Old Testament where the people are checking the right boxes and they're doing religious things and God isn't happy about it. Because the fear that God is after is not terror. His presence did create many, many instances of terror. But his desire... Is not that we would relate and obey and pursue lives of, you know, holiness out of terror. Do this, otherwise God's going to get you. Judgment is coming. Many examples where God says, in the book of Amos, for example, I like to go there because it's just a great articulation of the kind of fear that God's actually after. And it's not the fear of terror. God says throughout the book of Amos things like, your worship is a stench to me. I hate your feasts. I hate your fasts. Because you're, you're, you have a life of obedience, but your hearts are nowhere to be found. It's not, the, it's not the fear of God, the terror of God that he's after, which leads right into the second meaning of terror, of fear, I'm sorry. The fear of God that God is actually after. And this is the fear of, of awe. It's not... It's not fear that leads us to terror. It's a fear that leads us into awe. Not to run away from God and to not not desire to be with God. It's an awe that is actually compelling, that draws us close to God. We discover as we look through the wisdom literature of the Proverbs that God is not merely interested in right conduct from us at all. What he most cares about is an intimate relationship with us, flourishing for us. He is the creator. We are the creation. And so, it's not conduct devoid of love that he's wanting just going through motions to say, there, I've checked the boxes and, I've, and I've, I've gone through the motions and I'm religious and I'm obedient. You know, if you go through the motions, that's the end of relationship. Go through motions with your friends, that's the end of friendship. If you're married here today and you go through motions with your spouse long enough, that's the end of intimacy. So God is not interested in fear me and, and, and cower and obey otherwise, you know, that, because that's, absolutely devoid of love and of dynamism and that's not the love of God. God is not a cosmic ogre that's obsessed with obedience from subjects. The Bible presents him as a loving father who wants flourishing for his children and so it is this awe that God is after, this awe of who he is, this awe of what he has done, this awe of what he has come to do. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the God perfectly interpreted The entire Bible is 66 books that is all telling one story. It is culminating in Jesus Christ. It is is 66 accounts that is pointing toward the incarnation of God incarnate who came uh, to save a wayward humanity, not only from our sin and our rebellion against God, but also to renew us into lives of flourishing. So that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, reminds us that we will also have a resurrection. That in the end, in the renewed earth, in the renewed way of living, there will be flourishing and joy. The life that we desire and crave that that keeps evading us. That's the gospel. And Christ incarnate perfectly interprets God for us. So when we look at Jesus, there's no... We don't want to separate Jesus from the God of the Old Testament. There's a man named Marcion who shortly after John, uh, the Apostle John uh, passed, Marcion came on the scene as a theologian and said, there, you know, there's a big difference between the ogre of the Old Testament and this Jesus Christ who shows up in grace. The truth of the fact is Jesus is God, and he gives us the lens. He is the key that opens the understanding of the Old Testament, of the Scriptures. He opens up our hearts. He opens up our hearts, our minds, to see his grace. To see his wonder. And what you see from Jesus is uh, not that the boss comes and shows up and says, okay, that's it. You've had the law. You couldn't keep the law. So I'm going to come and the boss is coming and you're all in trouble. That's not the tone that it takes. If you uh, had a problem at your office and the owner of the company said, you know what? It's been a while. You haven't seemed to resolve this problem. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow and I'm coming. Your response to that would not be, oh, amazing. Amazing. Your response to that would be, oh no, the boss is coming. So when Jesus comes, after the people of God failed throughout the entire Old Testament to love God and love his ways, he doesn't come to say, okay, I'm going to give you the law one more time. That would have been a divine overreaction. He's like, you need a savior. So when Jesus comes, he's the perfect interpretation of who God is. He is God, fully God and fully man. And when we see Jesus, he's not saying, you know, cower before me. He's constantly saying, come to me, come to me. When Jesus performs a miracle in, uh, when the disciples are in the boat and the nets are full of fish, Peter's response to Jesus is fear. But it's initially the fear of terror. He realizes that Jesus is God, and he says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. So his first reaction is terror. And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't go, finally, somebody gets it. This is what I've been after all this time. I want you to cower in terror, and I want your obedience to be motivated by terror. That's not what Jesus' response is. When Peter says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man, Jesus says, fear not, I'm going to make you fishers of men. In other words, the fear I'm after is the awe of who I am and what I have come to do, of my grace and of my forgiveness. Be blown away by who I am. Why was Jesus having dinner with prostitutes and tax collectors? They were in awe and drawn to his grace, his forgiveness, the essence of who he was. He wasn't repelling them. He was compelling them. And so we see that this is the, the fear that God wants, not a terror that drives us from Him, the awe that drives us to Him so that we are fulfilled in Him. He then compels us by the indwelling power of His Spirit to resemble Him. He renews you and I because we were created for Him. We flourish when we live our lives in congruence with Him. And this is the driving force, the motivator under all of our obedience and our desires for holiness because awe is powerfully deep. It leads to life change. It leads to life change because when you're in awe of something, you are drawn to it in such a way that you begin to resemble the object of your worship. Find a person who worships a celebrity and their their whole way of being starts to resemble the worship of that celebrity. Their style, the way they do their hair. I mean, it's just there's a there is a resemblance. Find a young person that idolizes an athlete, worships at the feet of the athlete. And mod- they want to model their game after. I want to I want to learn how they made that. They're watching game film and slowing it down. How do I get what's going on in your life emulated in my life? That's worship. Even if you are here this morning and you're not a person of faith, you're exploring Christian faith. You live a life of worship. You live a life orienting yourself around the things that you consider the most valuable. And you know, I told that story about uh, Jericho and Rahab, the prostitute. Her fear went from a fear of terror to a fear of awe because Rahab came to believe in the God who saved Israel out of uh, certain death in Egypt. She came to saving faith in God. She married one of the uh, soldiers... Uh, of Israel. She is in the lineage of Jesus. Rahab the prostitute, mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, given incredible, mind-blowing dignity. If you're inventing a religion in the ancient world, in a patriarchal culture, you're not going to list a prostitute in your family lineage because that is a non-starter for this legend that you're trying to create. But there is Rahab's name, unapologetic. This woman came to the awe of God, and she became a worshiper of God, and she is in the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The scandalous grace of God's mercy. So may we live in this tremendous awe of him. Some of you are familiar with the passage in 1 John 4, 18, which says, fear has to do with punishment perfect love casts out fear so you see as christians we know judgment day is coming but we're motivated completely differently that's not whenever the new testament is talking about judgment day to the church it's serving as a warning for those who are just going through religious motions but they don't love jesus so it's a warning for them but for the rest of us who aren't just going through the motions all of the speech about judgment day is tremendously compelling because it means the end of sorrow the end of grief the end of brokenness The end of sickness and disease, the end of oppression, the end of injustice, the end of racism, the the end of all the isms that make life terrible. Every human is living with this paradox of, like, I love what it means to be a human, but I also hate these things that it seems that every day somebody's trying to nudge the world in a beautiful direction, and someone wakes up insisting on nudging it in an unloving and oppressive direction. And we're tired of that paradox, and the conversation around Judgment Day, the fear of God, is to shift us, not out of, not, not, it begins with the terror... It begins with the terror of, oh, I'm not God. I'm actually made of dirt. And one day I'm going to return there. But it doesn't, that's not actually what God's after. That's not going to compel anybody's uh, obedience. You, if Those of you who have young children, if your whole way of raising your children in the fear of the Lord is to be like, look, you better obey. Because if you don't obey, you know, um, you know God's going to judge you. Your children are never going to uh, uh, un- understand the true fear of the Lord. Which is to be in an awe and amazement of what he has done throughout human history. To have their, moans, their minds blown by Jesus Christ and his goodness. And so, the awe of God reforms the desires of our hearts. The awe of God reforms the pursuits of our wills. The conduct that's flowing through our hands. The awe of God, it changes everything. And that's why it's the beginning of wisdom. And not phase 2, 3, or 4 of wisdom. That's where wisdom starts. No, no awe of God, no wisdom. No wisdom. You can be intelligent, you can be the smartest person in every room, but you'll misapply all of that knowledge in life because you are your own small God crushed under the burden of curating your own sense of meaning in the world and identity. Let's move on. The text goes on to say something interesting. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in this awe of God all the day. How does a life, here's the second question, how does a life driven by envy stifle a life compelled by awe? Envy is put in opposition to awe. Envy hinders awe. If you and I, uh, by the way, for some of you that, uh, again, if you're visiting this morning, you might say, boy, this is really offensive language. Uh, The Bible's calling me a sinner. Well, uh, so unapologetically, the Bible is calling you a sinner. But just to be clear, everybody is a sinner standing next to Jesus. So you see, the claim of the Christian is not that I'm no longer a sinner, because I am. Spend enough time with me and you'll realize that I am. But that actually my identity is not that I'm a sinner. My identity is that I'm a child of God. The reality day to day is that I'm a sinner. But before God, because I trust in Jesus, the declaration over my life is that I am justified. And because that is true, I want to actually run away from my sin. I don't want to run away from God. I want to run to God and I want to run away from my sin. And so this language of the way that the word used sinner is here is not to suggest that, well, there's sinners and there's the people in church who aren't sinners. It's to say that this is like identity language. This is people who've said, like, there is no God, I am God. And so it says here that if I am envious of those who don't love God, if I'm envious of those who don't worship God, what is, where is this going to lead my life? They seem to be doing better than I am. I worship God and I love God, they don't, but their health is better than mine is. What gives? They seem to be doing better vocationally than I am what gives why are opportunities opening up for them that aren't opening up for me why do they have you know all these nice things in life and shiny toys and shiny things I wish that I had I mean if the envy is there the 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet why would God command us not to do that here's why if you think that because you love and worship God and you obey God but somehow good things should constantly flow into your life. You see obedience as a lever. You see obedience as button pushing. You're, there's no awe of God if you think God owes you. So you see, envy is in opposition to awe. Because it keeps me from living a life of obedience from pleasure. All of my obedience is now motivated by Payment. Oh man, why is, why is things in my life not working out? This person over here, they didn't even worship Jesus, and their life seems to be great. Well, maybe I should increase the spiritual disciplines so I can have a great life like they're having. The whole thing gets drastically skewed, and it becomes a button-pushing exercise, and it's tragic. So the envy is always going to eclipse awe if some rival affection has captivated my being. That rival affection becomes my God. And then acquiring some small gift has become infinitely more important than the giver. And so then instead of in awe of God, I need God to give me this thing so I can be happy because actually that's my God. That's the true king. This is why envy is is the end of awe. If I'm living in envy, I, I, I absolutely can't be in awe of God. Because I'm, if I'm in envy, I'm disappointed in God. I've been let down by God. I think God, if, I think God has somehow messed up my past, or I don't trust him with my future. But either way, the jury's out on whether I think God is a good God. This is the disintegrating power of envy. To borrow from C.S. Lewis, we are too easily pleased, too easily satisfied playing with mud pies and rain puddles because we've never been able to envision a holiday at the sea. So envy is at odds with awe. So let's move to the last thing. How does this future promise invigorate our present? So if the scriptures present fear as essential and good because it is awe, and strife is in opposition to awe, but there's a promise here, how does the promise of the future which says, continue in the awe of God all day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. How does that future promise invigorate the present? It's because there is an awe of appreciation. It changes the moment. It changes everything. I brought with me this morning this little timepiece from my grandma. My grandma, when she died, she left this to me. This little this little timepiece. And it just sits on this shelf at the house. It's like a wind-up alarm clock. And she brought this with her when they emigrated from uh, Diana, South America, to Canada. She put this in her suitcase back at a time when you could have a ticking suitcase and nobody was worried about that. So, it was a, so this is old. I don't know how old it is, but it's old. And imagine if, uh, after I, this little sermon illustration, one of you in here was a professional uh, in, in, in the world of antiquities. And you came up to me and you said, Paul, be careful with that thing. That's an ancient that, that's, a, that, that's a very old timepiece. It's very, very rare. It's worth 10 to $12 million. Whoa. All of a sudden, I would be in fear of this. In the proper sense. I would be in fear of it. I wouldn't be in fear it would hurt me. I would be in fear that if I don't relate to it properly, I would be the one causing harm. And I don't want to cause harm. I would see right now, this is on a shelf at the house, and it's so low, a child could reach over and grab it. But my whole way of behaving would change. This thing would have its own place. Right? right now, if a child's like, hey, can I see that? I'd say, sure. Tomorrow, hey, can I see that? No, I'm sorry, you can't see that. What? Why? It was okay yesterday. Well, it's not okay today. Everything's changed. Everything has changed. You see, it's a, it's, it would be a fear of appreciation, of cherishing. It would be the awe of the value of what I have received it would it would it would change everything so as we avail ourselves of God's grace it invigorates our present as we come and gather here corporately on Sundays we make this worship a priority because we're like I must receive from his goodness and be put my soul in a position of liturgical renewal so I can come into awe as this God's goodness is present in our homes through scripture meditation or prayer so we're availing ourselves of spiritual disciplines it's fueling the awe and i'm not talking about warm fuzzies i'm talking about a driving force that just changes our commitments fundamentally when susan and i uh susan before me but when susan and i came to the amazement of god's grace and of the gospel back in like 2012 around that time when that happened it compelled us it changed everything it it drove us to live, to do different things. I remember I had a very good job before we planted the church here at, at, at Redeemer. That came out wrong. This is a good job as well. I, didn't, I had a great job, and now I'm up to this, guys. Uh, that came out wrong. I meant to say things were good and stable and wonderful and great. And I was working for a particular ministry, and when I told them, Susan and I were so compelled by the gospel. Or like we were like, we have got to preach the gospel. We wanted to plant a church with, with our brothers and our sisters and preach the gospel in the city. And when I told them, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this probably next year. You've got a year to uh, let's replace me, and I'll train the next VP. And they had an in-camera meeting with me. The board scheduled a meeting, and they said, we want to have a meeting with you. And after, the con- after a convention we were at, they had an in-camera meeting where they said, Paul, these are the reasons why we don't think you should plant a church. And they laid them down. They said, we don't, th- we don't think it's going to be fulfilling to you. They said a whole bunch of other things. You're going to get bored. You're going to get tired. We've watched when you, when you work here with us. These are the ways we think you'll serve wellness organization. Here's what we see, think the future could be for you. Hey, by the way, let's also talk about salary stuff. And, so, and they laid all this stuff out. But I just said to them, I, ha- I have to do this. I have to do it. Susan and I have to do it. The, the awe of God, the wonder of God, it compels. So I'm not talking about warm fuzzies and emotions. I'm talking about a compelling force of love that motivates our desire for obedience. So that regardless of the conversations in the culture that are contrary to the wisdom and the guidance of God, we out of our fear of God do not fear man. And so therefore we will relate with you know grace and civility to everybody outside of our faith. But as it comes to our practice and the way that we raise our children, we're like, this is the wisdom and the ways of God. Our awe of God, of the grace of Jesus and what he has done, it absolutely compels us. And our, and our love flows from this awe. It doesn't flow from a, from a joyless sort of, you know, sense of obligation. The good news of the gospel is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the indwelling spirit empower us to do this. Look at the text over there where it says... Continue in this all the day. Continue in it all the day. Surely there is a future. Surely there is a hope. That is stability language. That is security language. A hope that will not be cut off. If you have no fear of God, if you have no awe of God, that means that in the end, death cuts everything off. You can say life is about this and life is about that. This is what true meaning is and this is what's the most valuable thing. And these are the hills I'm going to die on because this is the most important thing for society. Great. And in the end, everything you've made your life about is getting cut off. I'm not being morbid. I'm just being a realist. You and I are made of dirt, and we're returning there. No awe of God makes us God. In the end, death cuts everything off. But united to Jesus Christ by faith and grace, by believing in his resurrection, it is death that has been cut off. It is the finality of death that is coming to an end. Not all of our hope. For those united in Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means death has been cut off. To borrow from Douglas McKelvey as I close, death is no longer a period that ends the statement. But death for the Christian is like a comma that leads to the fuller and greater thought of renewal, of restoration, of bodily resurrection, the hope of the gospel. May we go into the city with this boldness and this humility. May we live, church, in this awe of God. Let's pray.